taking a few minutes out of your day to listen to this message. This is the Journey Church Podcast. Our hope is that it leads you closer to Jesus and encourages you to live your life on mission for Him. For more information about our church and how you can get involved in what God is doing at Journey, please visit jrny.church. Guys, I don't know about you, but that video makes me want to like uh, farm, but also like watch The Incredibles at the same time. And so, happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there! Uh, it's a great day to be in church. How many of y'all excited to be in church this morning? Yeah, some of you. <laughs> a rousing round of applause that you're awake right now. Hey, in just a few seconds, we're going to welcome our other campuses. Would you go ahead and put your hands together for me right now as we join our Montgomeryville campus, our Limerick campus? Aurora's for campus, Plymouth meeting, and those watching online. Man, it's an honor to be in church with you here this morning. I know you guys got already seated, but why don't you turn around and just give somebody a high five. Let them know you're excited to see them in church this morning. Hey, it's a great day when uh, I see someone in the parking lot and I have to squint in order to say hi to them. Like, that's the perfect day to me. And so the rain has held off at least since I had last been outside, which was an answer to my kind of just running prayer in life that it never rains, but somehow all of the crops still work. Um, And so, but it's sunny outside. Uh, It's an awesome day to be in church. I want to thank you again for joining us, especially if today at all of our locations, if it's your first or your second time in church, uh, man, it is such an honor to have you with us. Uh, We want to thank your friend that dragged you, either kicking and screaming or with a bribe or whatever they did. Uh, Congratulations, you guys did it. And so however you ended up in church, uh, it's our privilege to be with you here this morning. Uh, I'm going to read from the Bible in just a few moments. If you don't know, my name is Jordan. Uh, I have the honor to to speak with you uh, for the next few moments, and we're going to read from the Bible. Uh, If you don't know much about the Bible, what we believe here at Journey is it has the power uh, to completely change your life, That, that it's written by dozens of men over the course of hundreds of years, Uh, and though it might seem like it's just words, uh, the the message is consistent, and the message is this, that you and I, we were not good enough to get to God, uh, and so God found a way to us. And so we're going to be talking kind of around a similar theme today as we continue our Jesus Bars series. If you've been with us in church, you know we're in a, a sermon series, which is basically just a collection of talks, uh, and for the past three weeks, we've been in one that we've called Jesus Bars. Um, I, I could explain to you what Jesus Bars is, but I would probably not do it justice. Uh, like yesterday, my father-in-law was like, hey, so we watch you online. He was like, Jesus Bars, and I was like, yes. I'm told that in the urban culture, and then I was like, I should just stop here. You just need to go back to week one and watch Eric pop on the screen and Jesus bars, right? Like, I already just ruined it for you. And so, basically, though, we've been talking through the book of Psalms in the Bible. If you don't know, it's just a collection of songs, basically B-sides and uh, maybe songs you've never heard of before. Um, But similar to uh, really any jam from any era, when it comes on, like, it's still good, right? Like, uh, for me, every time I hear, was the summer of 69, like, for some reason, I just, like, I can't turn the station. Like, this is a jam, right? Like, it doesn't matter when it was written, this is a jam. And that's how the book of Psalms is. It's a bunch of songs that you've probably never heard of before, uh, but the content uh, is so relational to us about mankind, human nature, the things that we do, the things we get ourselves into, the things that we feel, uh, that it's valuable for us to read now hundreds of years later uh, and still be impacted by it. And so uh, I've titled today's message, I've made a huge mistake. 
Uh, I don't know if you've ever been there before, but I'll give you a couple examples, right? We all have that person that we knew growing up, maybe from school, high school, something, that if you get into a conversation with them, uh, like they will talk until both of you die. Like they'll just, they won't stop talking. And you see them in the grocery store and you make the mistake, right? Like you, tr- you, s- you want to say hi. You don't want to be rude because like that's, that's worse. Then they're definitely going to seek you and find you out and you're going to talk forever. You try to say hi, but you look at them for like a split second too long to where you're like, now it's awkward if I don't ask you how things are. And they start to tell you their life story and you just stand there and you think, I have made a huge mistake, right? Or let's just be honest. I'm going to offend somebody. Somebody's going to get mad at this. But whenever you find yourself in a high school musical or band production and you're sitting there and you're waiting for the overture, let's be honest. Don't we all think a little bit in our heads, I have made a huge mistake. Like what did I do (laughs) in life to not to deserve this, but to get here to where now I'm going to sit through this? Or for myself, kind of a more practical mistake uh, I'm doing some, some work on a bathroom in my house, uh, and I'm doing plumbing for the first time. Um, and I'm one of those people who's like, I can Google it, so probably I have the expertise of a carpenter that's been doing this for 20 years. And so I got the primer and the cement, you know, double pack. And I don't know why, but my brain just immediately thought, oh, this is perfect. You put the primer on one side, put the cement on the other, you push your PVC fitting, and you're good to go. And If everything I said to you was Spanish just now, let me clarify. That's not how you do it. You're supposed to put, I think the correct term is a crap ton of primer and cement everywhere and smash it together and then duct tape it. Uh, And so I flushed my toilet and all of the leaks came forward and I thought I have made a huge, a huge mistake, right? Or let's be honest, some of us, we've made more real mistakes, right? Like you say something, maybe you say something, this is Father's Day, and so maybe you say something to your spouse and like you weren't thinking, you were, you, you, like you're still playing Kawhi's shot in your head and she asks you something and you're not really paying attention and you answer and you're like, oh no, like I, no, it looks great on you. That, that's, that's what I meant to say. Or no, she was totally crazy when she said that to you, right? And you say something and you're like, this is gonna haunt me later. Like we all have things in our lives like that, right? Like let's just be honest. We've all made mistakes that truthfully, as soon as we made the mistake, we thought like this is going to bite me later on down the road. Like this is something I'm not going to be able to get away from easily. Or or maybe if we can get a little bit more serious, how about those mistakes that we, we know hurt someone else? Like you make a mistake and you know that ultimately the person that's carrying that mistake, it's not just you, it's another person. And like daily you walk around with it and you've made the mistake. Or maybe you've made a mistake and you keep it secret, right? And it follows you around. Like I want to talk today about what happens when you make such a monumental mistake that you, you really you don't even know what to do. Like you don't know how to move forward You have trouble looking at yourself in the mirror. Maybe you have trouble sleeping at night. Uh, I would say that if this message was medicine, uh, the the symptoms to tell you you need to take it would be uh, that you can't sleep at night, that that, that you have a very skeptical view of relationships. You're very cynical. Uh, You have difficulty connecting with people. Uh, You tend to be pretty shameful, and so you cover it up with a lot of sarcasm. Like Those would be the types of things that maybe this message is, is for you. And 
I would tend to believe that really, uh, if we were to take a poll, that's just all of us. Like nobody here has gone, nope, I don't deal with any of that stuff. It's like liar, right? I will call you out in church. Matt, know what, Matt knows what I'm talking about here. And so <laughs> he sat in the front. He's like, I made a mistake, a huge mistake. And there are times when we make mistakes that literally we don't know how to move forward from, and that's what I want to talk about today. And so I'm going to tell you a story, uh, and it's a story about a man uh, who, good news, has done probably worse things than you and I will ever do. And so at some level, that kind of makes us feel good, if we're honest, right? Because misery loves company, especially when that company is more miserable than we are. But if we're also truthful at the same time, we can relate to this story. Like, there, there is a bit of this story in all of our stories, uh, and, and if we're willing to be truthful with ourselves this morning, I think there could be a lot of growth. I think there could be a lot of moving forward. I think if we're not honest with ourselves this morning, there could be a lot more anxiety and a lot more medication we need to take and a lot higher of a chance that we have a sudden heart attack because we keep things inside and we don't deal with them. And so today I want to talk to you about a man named David. Last week we talked about David. If you didn't see that message, it's a pretty unbelievable message uh, I think that Steve had prepared for us and that God spoke about waiting for God's timing and, and, and not rushing things and uh, now we're going to read about David and he has learned that lesson and he's about to learn a different lesson. David at this point now is further along in his life. Uh, he's kind of established and so to give you some background, uh, we're, we're, we're reading about King David. We're going to be in a couple different Bible verses if you have your Bibles. Psalm 51 will be there for most of the day. You can flip there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can look on the screens at all of our campuses right now. They'll throw it up. It's going to say text notes to 25827, and you can follow along. Uh, here on my iPad, I have some notes that I'll speak from today. And maybe if you're a visual learner like me, it would be helpful to see them. You can get all of those again by texting notes to 25827. If you guys would leave that up there just for a moment longer as people text that in, uh, we'll go ahead and give you guys just a moment. But to give you some background, King David, if you don't know anything about him, uh, the nation of Israel was God's chosen people. Uh, God, God, God was planning to show who he was to the world through the nation of Israel. And God had led them through pretty remarkable circumstances throughout history to the point where our story takes place. And yet, the people of Israel are still obstinate enough to say, God, you're not enough. We want a king instead to lead us. We want to see a person. And so God says, okay, I'll put up with you and I'll give you a king. And so he gives them their first king. He goes by the name Saul. That doesn't really work out very well. Uh, and then along comes David, right? David is the second king of Israel. He has big shoes to fill because there was a lot of expectations of what a king would do for the nation. And Saul had done some of them, but left a lot of them really, by large, completely unfinished. And David steps into the picture, and, and there's a lot that needs to happen for him to sort of earn his stripes. And as we read our story, at this point, David is past all that. David has experienced success. He has conquered nations. God has done miracles in front of his very eyes. David has, has everything, right? As far as the eye can see, he has palaces. He has kingdoms, right? They would write rap songs about him because he just, he had everything. And David is the subject of our story, having everything and yet not having enough. And so if you want to read the story for yourself, it's in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. We're not going to read through it all today because it's pretty lengthy uh, and you would stop listening probably after about three verses if we're all truthful. 
Uh, I've reached right now my eight-minute capacity of people's attention spans. And so for those of you who are still with me, God bless you, right? And so we're going to really just kind of summarize this story. So David, he, he, he's conquered everything. He has everything. In fact, he's so confident in his leadership and in his ability for his army to, to do what they need to do, right? I'm picturing the movie 300 in my head. Like they're a solid unit. They can't be stopped. David says, I don't feel the need to go out to war with you guys. You guys handle it, handle your business, and let me know how it goes, right? And so the Bible says in the springtime, when the kings go off to war, which is maybe my favorite part of the Bible because, like, the irony is not lost on me. We're about to tear each other to shreds, but let's be civil about this. Let's wait until it's nice outside, right? Like, <laughs> let's wait until the flowers come out, and then we'll let the war commence. And so in the springtime, when the kings go off to war, David, David stays back in the palace, which is already our first red flag. Because you know something bad's going to happen when David's by himself, right? And so David is, you know, strolling the, the, the palace grounds, you know, hey, that, that, you know, landscaping looks good and that meal smells good and whatever else. And he finds himself on the rooftop. And the Bible says that he gazes upon a beautiful naked woman that's bathing. Don't you just hate when that happens when you're like walking on your roof, like out of nowhere, like you just happen to look at the right moment right? Crazy how often that happens. And David sees this woman and he calls his entourage and he says, I want you to go find out who that is, right? And bring her, bring her back to me, right? Because David, again, he has, he has everything. David sends his people and they say, her name is Bathsheba. And he goes, oh, that's so pretty. He says, it's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David at this point should do what any honorable man would do and go, okay, she's taken. He liked it. He put a ring on it. Case closed. The Bible says, David says, bring her back to my quarters. And they have a one-night stand together. They sleep together, and they try to move on like nothing has happened. It's a one-time mistake. We'll move on. Nobody will be hurt for it. Nobody will be the wiser. We'll keep going on like nothing has happened, except Bathsheba sends word that she's pregnant. And all of a sudden, David has a problem. Because Uriah's going to get back from war, and he's going to do the math. That's somebody else's baby. And so David has a genius idea. He says, you know what I'll do? I'll bring Uriah back from war. I'll host a party for him at the palace. I'll send him home. He'll enjoy a night with his wife, and nobody will ever know. So that's what he does. He brings Uriah back. He says, Uriah, you know what? You, out of all the hundreds of thousands of warriors, you have just been incredible <laughs> over the past few weeks. And I wanted to reward you with a party at the palace. And they have a party, all the festivities. He sends Uriah home and he goes to bed that night confident that his plan has worked. And his men wake him up the next morning. They say, David, Uriah slept on the steps of the palace last night. He didn't go home. And David goes, what is with this guy? I can't catch a break. He calls Uriah in. Uriah says, how dare I go home and enjoy a night with my wife when my fellow soldiers are out sleeping underneath the stars preparing for war? Uriah has more character in his pinky at this point than David does in his whole body. And I can imagine David getting all the more irritated with this guy because he's ruining everything for him. He says, okay, plan A didn't work. Let's try plan B. Let's do everything I said I was going to do except we'll get him drunk. So he brings him to the palace, brings more wine, brings out the good wine. 
Wine is flowing, everybody's singing, dancing, having a good time. Wakes up the next morning, your eyes still asleep on the palace steps. At this point, David is furious. He's going to ruin everything for me. The Bible says David concocts a plan. He calls up the commander of his army, Joab, and he says, Joab, I want you to devise a plan in which Uriah dies, and I want you to make it look like an accident. And so Joab tells a squadron of his soldiers, he says, I want you to attack this particular wall because they would have had defenses around their cities that Joab was well aware was, was very guarded, and it's obviously it's unwise to stand underneath of a wall where people can throw stuff at you. And so the Bible says that the men, they move towards that section of the wall, but then they pull back, and Joab, he's struck in the head by a millstone that a woman drops off of the wall. But not only does Uriah die, it says that multiple innocent bystanders die because of this cover-up. And David says, okay, everything is fine. I've covered it up, I moved on. Nobody will ever know about this. And then you read in 2 Samuel 12, a man named Nathan. Man, I would not want to have Nathan's job, right? Nathan comes to David and he says, David, I need you to weigh in on a situation that's happening in your kingdom. He says, there's a man, a wealthy man, who has everything and he's hosting a visitor from out of town. And he wanted to give him a gift. He wanted to give him a sheep. But instead of using one of the thousands and thousands and thousands of sheep that he owns... He went to a nearby peasant and took his only sheep. The Bible says the sheep that this man cared for like a daughter. It says he took his sheep and he gives it to his visitor. And David says, this cannot be. That man should be punished. And Nathan says, you are that man. You did it. You had everything. You had everything and you had to take, you had to take his one thing. And what do you do when you have made such a big mistake and you're confronted with it? How do you sleep at night? How do you move forward? Well, David writes a song right after all this happens. It's found in Psalm 51. And we're going to read parts of it throughout the message today. And at the end, we'll read it in its totality. But David comes to a realization that I would hope we would all come to today. And it's this. There's only one way out. There's only one way out. The Bible calls it repentance. And we're not very good at repenting, for the most part, as a species. We, we just, we don't know how to do it very well. And as you read this song, we start to get some elements of what it looks like to truly repent. The type of repentance that you can move on from. Where it doesn't follow you at night. We'll talk about how to repent. There's a couple different things I think you can learn from this song, but I'm just going to pull out three this morning. The first one is this. Uh, instead of excuses, own it. When we make a mistake, what is our go-to? Let me rephrase. When I make a mistake, what is my go-to? When I only got 56 on my first Papa Shot try, some was in my eyes. You should get more than one try. Everybody was too noisy. The balls are weighted different here than they are in Roresford. 
I'd have gotten 120,000 if I'd have had all the right circumstances, right? Like the first thing I want to do is make excuses. Like maybe you've heard yourself say things like this. Like my parents, you know, they, I had sorry excuses for parents. And so that's why I did what I did. Or, or my dad, he just wasn't around. And so that's why I act like this. Or, or, or you know, I had nothing growing up. At least I provide for my kids when I don't talk to them. For me, it would be, I had twins. I only had enough love for one of them. I picked my favorite. It's Jack. I'm sorry. Pick the lovable dummy. Like, there's plenty of excuses we can make, but here's the problem. The excuses that we make don't change the effects of what we've done. David could have made all the excuses in the world. God, you had me hiding in caves. I had to pretend like I was crazy at one point. I got a little messed up. My priorities got out of order. He could have made all the excuses in the world. I want to read for you what he says instead. In Psalm 51, at the very beginning of this song, he says this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. In other words, he's saying, I can't get away from it. It's there when I wake up. It's there when I go to sleep. It haunts me. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right to judge, and you're right in your verdict. You're right, and I was wrong. This is what repentance starts like. And I'll tell you what, we're experts at making excuses. But the truth of the matter is, at the end of the night, the only person who needs to believe those excuses is the one looking back at me in the mirror. Can I be honest with you? He's not fooled. He's not buying it. And we make these excuses. All the while, the people around us, including ourselves, are still hurting because of the things that we've done. When we refuse to own it, can I tell you what happens? We do it again. See, David, he's tired of, of justifying. He, he's, he's called out by someone, and he's tired of the running. He's tired of the concealing. He just owns it. Can I ask you, why, why, why do we do this? Like, why, why can't we just say, I made a mistake? Why can't we just say, I messed up? I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have been at that place when that happened. I shouldn't have gone there. Like, why can't we just own it? I'm going to tell you why I think I probably do this. I think I tend to not want to admit that I've made a mistake and that I actually am as bad as I, I, I tend to be with my decisions because I'm afraid God treats me like I would treat me. Like, I tend to not be the first to give grace and mercy. I want martial law. I'll give you an example. The day that I wrote this sermon, somebody cut me off in Dunkin' Donuts. And I was already at a gas station Dunkin' Donuts. And so I was like at the, already at the bottom of the barrel. Like, I needed it. And she just cut me off. She came in in a legal entrance. Do not enter. I'm going to videotape this and send it to the police. And like, in that moment, I didn't initially think, you know what, maybe they've had a really bad day. 
Maybe they need this coffee worse than I do. I have twins, so I think that's a bull-faced lie, but whatever. Maybe they needed coffee more than I needed it. No, the first thing I wanted to do is roll my window down, because they were right next to me then. It was super awkward for them. I was staring at them. It's okay. I didn't have a Journey bumper sticker on that car at the moment. Actually, I did. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to roll my window down, and I wanted to say the worst thing I could possibly think to them. I hope you get where you're going and you don't realize that until then that your order's wrong. But I contained myself. And then I got to Panera and I was starting to write some of this message initially. And I don't know if school let out, but like a, gr a group of like, probably like, it must have been 200, I didn't turn around to look, cackling teenage girls showed up. And someone told them the funniest joke in the history of the world. And they laughed for 20 minutes straight. <laughs> I was like, I can't hear my worship music. I'm going to tell you how rude this is. I'm going to tell you how you're not going to get nowhere in life if you're rude like this. Like, that's my tendency. And I think it's easy for me to read that into the character of God. That if God is out there... If he's real, if he is who everybody says he is, and I don't have anything to point out bad in him to put him on the same level as me, and I am as bad as I'm willing to admit that I am, like what must he want to do with me? What must he want to do to me? My good news for you today is this. God does not love like you and I love. In fact, what we call love is not love at all. I want to read to you a verse in 1 John chapter 1, the very beginning of this book. This man named John who walked with Jesus, he writes a book and he says this. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I love that he says we deceive ourselves because how many of us know when we try to pretend like nothing is there, most of the time people around us know something is going on. Like, you're only fooling yourself, and not really. He says, but if we would confess our sins, he's faithful, and he's just, and he'll forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, he has every right to be angry with us. He has every right to walk away from us. He has every right to shake his hands, kick the dust in our direction, and walk off. The Bible says that he promises not to. There's another verse in Deuteronomy. It's towards the beginning of the Bible. And God says this to a man named Joshua, who's preparing to do something very difficult. He says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, the people he's going to encounter. He says, for the Lord, your God goes with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. We own it. Instead of making excuses, the first step is just simply to own it, and it's to trust God and say, God, you know what? I trust that you're not impressed with my fake goodness. I trust that you're not convinced by my lame excuses, and I trust most of all that you don't expect me to make it right, and that's the second part I want to talk about. When you are truly repentant, what it looks like to repent is you let yourself be broken, See, because I think if we can get to that point where we're willing to admit, you know what, 
probably inherently inside of me is not just like this goodness. Like probably there's something messed up inside of me to where if I'm honest, if I knew I would get away with something and no one would ever know and it would benefit me, but it would hurt someone else. If we're truthful, a lot of times we would take that option. People say that character is what you do when no one is looking. I'll take it a step further. I think true character is what you would do even if you knew you'd get away with it. But if we can come to that point where we go, you know what, okay, maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. Maybe I deal with things. Maybe I have something going on inside of me. I'll tell you what the next reaction probably is for most of us. God, if you're out there and somehow you found a way to be okay with me, even though I'm jacked up, I'm going to do everything I can to make it right. I'll show up to church more than anybody else. I'll serve more than anybody else. When they pass those little tin buckets that look like KFC buckets, I'll even put a dollar in at the end. Like, I'll do whatever you want, God. And the problem is, inherently, all of the things I mentioned are not bad things. In fact, here at Journey Church, they're what we encourage you to do in taking your next steps in following Jesus. The problem is, what motive do you do it with? Do you do it because God has saved you? Or is there a part inside of you that if you're truthful, you'd prefer that you deserved some of the love that God gave you? Because I'll tell you, that, that's where I tend to fall. I would prefer it if I could earn at least some of it. If I wasn't just completely and entirely in his debt. Because if I'm truthful, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to rely wholly on somebody else. I want to be, what happened to Miss Independent? Like, I want to be a self-sustaining island. And I don't want to need God. Listen to what David writes. Further on in the song, he says, You don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, God, is a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart you, God, will not despise. David's saying, God, anything that you want, I would do it. If somehow you've made a way for me to be okay, if somehow you made a way for all this to go away, if somehow you made this right, I would do whatever you ask. But at the same time, David knows God's not asking him to do anything. There's nothing David could do. It's funny how we get into this like works mentality where we go, well, as long as I do more good things, than bad things, then I'm going to be okay at the end of my life. That's kind of crazy to me because it's like that doesn't undo the bad things. If I smash into your car in the Walmart parking lot and I leave a note that says, I'm going to volunteer at the food bank this week, don't worry. You're not like, oh, it's cool. He did a good thing. You're like, I'm going to kill somebody. This isn't my car anymore. I'm just leave it here and walk away. We let ourselves be broken, and it's a difficult balance because it doesn't mean you live depressed. It means you live in a space where you go, you know what? Every single day, I am going to be met with the choice between good and bad, between right and wrong, and every single day, I'm going to need God's help to make the right choice. Every single day. I'll tell you what happens when you start to think that you've earned some of it. You are doomed to repeat it again. Because when you finally do get your crap together, you're going to start to think somewhere in the back of your mind that you did something to get there. 
It's this human condition called pride. It's the penultimate sin. And I think one of the ways of countering it is deciding ahead of time not to be shameful, not to carry around guilt, but to be humble and recognize your limitations. And here are our limitations. This side of eternity, we will never be perfect. Every single day, we need God. And it's supposed to be that way. We're supposed to rely on him. It'd be like your kid coming to you one day and saying, I want to chip in with the mortgage. I'm four, but like I can probably do something. Part of you would be like, sweet, let's do it. I'll set you up on a recurring payment plan. But the logical part of us would be like, that you don't have anything. Pay for all of your stuff. You'd be like, dad, I want a special treat. You got special treat money? No, it's ridiculous. But somehow, for some reason, we convince ourselves that we can give a little bit to contribute to what God has done for us. It's not humility. I'm sorry, it's not shame, it's humility. It's not guilt, it's wisdom. You walk around every single day going, God, I... I need you. In fact, I would call it a word that probably most of us would not use to describe ourselves on an average basis, living in the area that we do with the lever of comfortability that we do. I would call it desperation. And most of the time, us in the middle class and wherever you find yourself, but even just living in America in general, we're not desperate for most things. And can I just tell you, whether or not you know it, you are desperate for the presence of God. We have been created with a place in our hearts and our souls where God belongs. And shy of him being there, we will spend years messing things up, trying to fill it in with something else. We own it, and we learn how to live broken. And the last thing is this. We accept, accept what he's spoken and I'll tell you, this is probably the hardest part of the message for me because if I'm honest, when I read through the story, I just wanted to change the ending. And I was like, how many people really read the Bible? <laughs> like, maybe they won't know. <laughs> Some of you laughed at that. And I was like, God, if I'm honest, I don't like how this story ends. Like, it ends like a tragedy, tr truth be told. Let me read to you. Nathan talking to David after he confronts him and after David says, I've sinned. Nathan says this and he's speaking for God. In chapter 12, verses 10 to 13, he says, Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. In other words, your family is always going to fight. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household... I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your, this is rough right here. Before your very eyes, I'll take your wives and I'll give them to someone who is close to you and they will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. And David says, really the only thing he can say at this point, I have sinned against the Lord. And here's what I genuinely believe about God. I believe that God is a God of restoration. 
I believe he's a God of reconciliation. I believe where things have been made wrong, he can make them right. I believe where things are broken, he can put them back together. I believe that he saves us oftentimes from the effects of our sin. But here's what I can't ignore from this story. Sometimes the effects of our sin just follows us. Like every single thing I just read, it happens to David. Like God doesn't go, oh, that was just like a a warning. If you don't get yourself together, I'm going to do this stuff. David is truly repentant and all that stuff happens anyways. And, And as I thought about it this week, I was like, what do you do with that? How do you preach that? The only thing I can walk away with is this. I think David is wise enough to know that whatever consequences would follow, it would be better than him not being right with God. In fact, I would tell you that is the measure of true repentance. Where your heart comes to a point where you say, even if all of my worst nightmares come true because I come forward with this, it would be better for me to wade through all of that crap than to not be right with my God. I can't live like this anymore. I have sinned. I'll own it. I'm not going to let myself get back to being prideful again where I'll do it again. And God, even if everything goes to crap, I I'll still confess. I'll still repent. And I'll tell you on Father's Day, most of us are not man enough to do that. Just not. But somebody at all of our campuses, God spoke to you over the past few moments, and you're going to leave this place, and you're not going to be able to keep it quiet any longer. You're not going to be able to sit on it. You're not going to be able to hide it anymore. You're going to have to repent. And can I just tell you what's going to happen in that moment? Stuff might go wrong, but here's what you're going to feel inside. gonna be able to sleep again and the ultimate consequence where we spend eternity when we breathe our last you'll be confident in knowing that it's with Christ friends it is not worth it it's not worth it to hide that thing that you've done and so here's what's gonna happen today I genuinely believe that people are gonna leave our campuses and you're gonna go home now notice David does not announce to the kingdom that he sinned. It didn't involve everyone, but it did involve someone, Nathan. Some of us, we're going to go home and we're going to say, honey, I had an affair. Some of us, we're going to go to our kids and we're going to say, I wasn't what I should have been for you. Some of us, we're going to go to our bosses at work and we're going to say, if it costs me my job, I need you to know I cut corners, I stole money, I made up reports. I can't live like this anymore. There's no medication that's gonna take it away. There's only one way out, and it's to repent. And my challenge to you this Father's Day, but for all of us, would be this. Just do it. We're gonna sing these words in just a moment, and I wanna read this psalm to you. In its, 
in its totality so you can hear and you can feel what David is writing. Because if we're honest, some of us are going to feel this way today. Some of us are going to hear these words and go, oh my gosh. Hundreds of years later, I feel the same way. And maybe we'll learn something from it. Maybe some of us who haven't made a mistake, we'll stop it before it happens. Would you read with me on the screens these verses here? Read along as I read aloud. David says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Watch away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and you're justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. He's saying, I have no excuse. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. And then his tone shifts. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Somehow, let the bones that you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. This is my favorite verse. God, whatever you do, do not cast me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Renew to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. In other words, he knows it's going to be a hard road from here. God, give me the spirit to not give up. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Because of my sins, somebody else is going to avoid this. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior. My tongue will sing. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I will bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Some of us, we're going to leave this place today, and we're going to repent. You're going to tell somebody that you've been addicted to pornography and you just can't get over it. You're going to tell somebody that you've been stealing, and you don't know why, but you never feel like you have enough. You've lived in poverty maybe when you grew up, and you feel like you have to get as much as you can for yourself and never give any away. We're going to confess because I can tell you it's very difficult to hear the heart of God. It's very difficult to stand in a room like this and praise and feel joy when we sing those first two songs when you carry around this weight with you. I lived like that. I didn't want to praise. I didn't want to sing. I wanted to get here after worship. I'm going to make it right. And it's not going to be easy. But it's going to be worth it. And at all of our campuses, there are those of you who are listening that you don't know Jesus. You would say you don't know anything about this church stuff. You just showed up because somebody told you that they would take you to IHOP afterwards. And you don't really know what's going on here. But if you're truthful with yourself, like something is happening inside of you. And you can't explain it. And you don't understand it all. But you can relate to what I'm saying. And what I'm saying makes sense. And here's my encouragement to you. Every single week, people come back and will say to Pastor Steve or whoever's speaking, they'll say, it's the weirdest thing. Did you know what was going on in my life? Because it was like you were talking right to me. You're freaking me out, man. 
And every week we say, no. <laughs> Honestly, I don't. I don't. I don't know what's going on. That's the Holy Spirit. This is just a human talking on a stage. A camera is sending me to other places geographically. And it's just people sitting in regular fabric black seats. But somehow in the midst of all of that, the presence of God does something supernatural. He does a miracle. It's the only way I can describe it. He changes the hearts of men and women. And if you're as stubborn as I am, you know that that is nothing shy of a miracle. And maybe you've been sitting here and you don't understand the whole God thing, but if you're truthful, you're starting to think to yourself, you know what, if there's a God that has somehow come to forgive me and I know how jacked up I am, that sounds pretty good. I want to tell you, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's this, that you and I, we are not perfect. We're far from it. Given a thousand lifetimes, we could never live a perfect life. I know that. You know that. Let's just be real. And if there is a good and a perfect God out there, it doesn't take long for us to realize that he probably ought to have nothing to do with us. He's perfect and we're not. We messed up. We had every chance to try to get perfect from a certain point forward and we still can't manage it we have royally messed up this thing called life we've made mistakes we've hurt people we've hurt ourselves we've made a mess of it even our happiest we've still felt like there's something that's not there and the bible says that our sin separates us from god but god had a backup plan his name was jesus there's a man named Jesus Christ. He comes and he walks on this earth. He's written about in dozens of historical books. You can't deny that Jesus lived. What you can deny is what he did and who he was. So Jesus, he comes and he walks on this earth for about 30 years in obscurity. He's a carpenter's son. He's nothing really to write home about. And somewhere around his 30th birthday, he starts doing crazy stuff. He shows up at parties. He turns water into wine. Jesus will be super popular with us these days. He moves on. He starts healing people. Keep in mind, there's no iMessage. There's no Facebook. Whispers of a man named Jesus start to spread around the ancient world. So much so that if somebody says Jesus is showing up somewhere, thousands of people show up because they want to know what's going on. People born blind start to see. He speaks life into people's lives where only death and condemnation had been spoken. He's a different type of dude, this Jesus. He brings somebody back from the dead. You can't say Jesus is just a good person. He's either God or he's crazy. The Bible says at the end of his life that the church people, the religious people, they're so sick and tired of him. that They devise a plan in which people present false testimony to get him murdered. They take him to trial and they want the, the death sentence. Keep in mind, Jesus, at the end of his life, his 12 best friends have nothing bad to say about him. His family members have nothing bad to say about him. Listen, you could be the nicest person in the world, but I guarantee you if I find your 12 best friends, they love you. But they know you're an idiot. <laughs> Let's just be real. They got stuff they can say about you. Jesus' 12 closest friends come to one conclusion. This is God. The Bible says at the end of his life, his friends are cowards. They flee. They'll get their shot later on to redeem themselves. But Jesus is left all alone. It would have been the easiest court case in the world to win. 
They couldn't find one testimony that lined up with another. And yet somehow the people find a way to persuade the Roman government to kill this man. And not just kill him, but completely decimate his character, rip his body apart. So much so that Pontius Pilate, who is the governor of that time, he stands in front of the people. He gets a bowl of water and he washes his hands and he says, this man's blood is not on my hands. He's done nothing wrong. And they shout, crucify him, even louder. And they march him to his death. And you probably know this part. He hangs on a cross. If it's me, I, I probably got a lot of choice words for the people around me. Jesus doesn't do any of that. In fact, the only words he says are, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. What the heck is that? What do you mean, forgive them? It says that at the end of his life, he breathes his last. The story's over. Everybody goes home. And the Roman government knows what will happen if this guy comes back from the dead. Because his whole life he's been telling people pretty much he's coming back from the dead. It was veiled and vague in the way he said it. But people are starting to think, okay, I'm pretty sure at one point Jesus said, like, I'm going to go away and I'm going to come back. And like, what, what does he mean? What's going on? And so the Roman government don't like that. And so they put as many guards as they can in front of this massive tomb where they roll a big stone in front of it. And then three days later some women that were close to Jesus come to visit his gravesite, pay their respects and all of the men are passed out on the ground and the stone is moved and Jesus is not there and here's the message Jesus should have been dead with no more options and the power of God rose him from the grave and you and I, we should have been dead in our sins Metaphorically, and probably literally, I have done things that earned me a spot on that cross. He had done nothing. And he took my place. And the promise is this, that when I breathe my last and I'm met with a good and a perfect God, he's not going to see all my shame. He's not going to see my mistakes. He's not going to see my guilt. The Bible says that I hide in the shadow of the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus stands in front of me, good and perfect Jesus. And I'm found acceptable in God's eyes. Where I messed everything up, where I was at my worst, Jesus was at his best. And I came to a point where I realized who Jesus was and what I had done to him by the way that I had lived and the mistakes and the choices I made. And I sat in a seat at the Colonial Theater, much like the seats we're in right now. And I said, God, if you want my life, I'll give it to you. I'll give you everything. My life is completely different now because of Jesus. And that's the message that we share on Sundays. Pop a shot, everything else is exciting. But can I tell you, it's all a ruse to get you to hear the gospel of Jesus. It's completely changed our lives. It's the only reason we have church. And what we do right now at all of our locations is we give you the opportunity to respond to God. And so right now, if you would, close your eyes and just slightly bow your heads out of a moment of reverence for what's going to happen at all of our campuses. If you're in Plymouth meeting right now and in Montgomeryville, in Limerick, in Roarsford, I don't know what it's felt like for you, but maybe it's been a burning in your chest. Maybe your your eyes have been opened for the first time ever. Maybe you just, all of a sudden it just clicked. It just made sense. Something I said, you just went, you know what? That's it. I've been looking for this. And I need to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I need to give him my life today. 
I don't fully understand what that means. I don't fully grasp that, but I'm going to fully trust him. And so at all of our locations, we do one really simple thing. It's simple and it's bold and it's with purpose. We're going to ask you in just a moment, I'm going to count to three and I'm going to ask you if you would say, I need to make Jesus the Lord over my life. I'm going to ask you to put your hand in the air. And if that's you at all of our locations, there's someone standing in the front just to let me know that I'm praying with you this morning. But here's why we're going we're gonna to do that this morning. Because when you leave here, the enemy of your soul who had previously trapped you in this continual sin and shame and guilt, lather, rinse, repeat, uh, awful wheel or, or, or cycle, he's going to try to convince you the moment you leave this place, you're the same. <laughs> Nothing changed. You remember what you did last night? You remember what you did last week? That person is still you. And you're going to say, no, no, no. On Father's Day of all days, I raised my hand and I made Jesus the Lord of my life. And he promised to make me new. He promised to change me. He promised things won't be the same anymore because I gave him all of me. You're going to make a bold step because you're going to carry that step with you out of this room. And so that's you at all of our campuses. I'm going to count to three. Don't pay attention to the person next to you. Their opinion won't matter in eternity. If you would say, I need to make Jesus the Lord of my life count to three at all of our campuses and then I'm asking you to raise your hand ready one two three if that's you just place your hand in the air and let me know that I'm praying with you if you would say I need to make Jesus the Lord of my life right now in Montgomeryville if you would say that's you I see you right there come on let's clap together church is there anyone else in Roarsford there's somebody who's responding come on church let's clap like somebody's going to spend eternity with Jesus today if you would say that's me I'm gonna give just one more moment longer there's somebody in Limerick right now. Come on, church. Let's celebrate with them. We're clapping. We're celebrating because we know what it felt like to be in your position. We remember what it felt like that day that we made that decision. I'm just going to let it get one more moment longer. If you would say, I don't want to miss this moment. I need to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Come on, church. Let's play, pray together right now. God, we're so grateful to be in your presence. We're grateful for what you're doing. God, I pray that you would give us supernatural boldness when we leave this room. God, for those of us that have been living in covered up sin, some of us maybe for decades. God, regardless of the consequences, regardless of what happens, we're going to come forward. Because God, it's not worth it. We want to be made right in your eyes. We want you to use us. We want you to speak to us. We're tired of feeling callous. We're tired of feeling numb. We want our lives to look different. God, as we sing this song right now, we're going to ask that you create a new heart in us as we leave this place. We're grateful for your power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Journey Church, would you shout amen with me this morning? Let's clap together at all of our campuses.